Salam and welcome to the Indian Ocean series of the Ajam podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Stevenson, and here with me today is Johan Matthew, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University and author of the award-winning book, Margins of the Market, Trafficking and Capitalism Across the Arabian Sea. Thanks, Johan, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So the Indian Ocean, as we've talked about in the previous podcast, has been seen as a very fluid space with people and goods coming and going. And Johan is here to talk about circulation around the Indian Ocean and how that changed in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So as someone who's thought and written a lot about the way that people and goods flowed between the shores, can you start off by giving us a picture of the Indian Ocean and how trade and economic life are essential to this space? Obviously, one of the first things just to kind of get off the bat, which I'm sure many people would know kind of instinctively, is that it's a huge space, right? And I think the statistic may be correct that more people live around the coasts of the Indian Ocean than any other ocean. I could be wrong about that, but there's a lot of different people, a lot of different religions and cultures, and not only sort of people on land, but also on on the ocean itself, right? The sailors and the ships and the things that they're trading are hugely varied depending on which part of the ocean you're on, what time of the year it is. So the first thing to say is that there's enormous diversity and difference, and there's no way to really encapsulate this enormous and diverse space in any sort of simple way. And one of the things, though, that I think is actually interesting about the Indian Ocean and and maybe bodies of water more generally is that they actually do kind of focus our attention on how we bridge those differences. So how do you relate to someone from a different culture? That kind of interaction, that cross-cultural interaction happens in a more concentrated way on the waves of a place like the Indian Ocean than they do, say, on land, where there's a little bit more separate things out a little bit more. You don't have to meet people who are of different cultures and different things. So I think it's correct to say that the main reason why people cross the ocean is is to trade goods, mostly for economic profit, though not exclusively. Obviously, people have crossed this ocean for pilgrimage and for political conquest and and various other things. But if we look at just the sheer numbers of people who decide to get out on the water, trade is a hugely important, if not the most important piece of why people decide to get on a ship. And even in the 19th century, it was an endeavor that was not without risk. So I think, you know, if you went on a cruise ship today, you wouldn't really worry about dying in the process. But indeed, even into the early 20th century, did worry about whether they would die. And so why would you make that kind of journey, potentially for, you know, to perform a pilgrimage? But in many cases, and and I would think most people, they do that in order to buy and sell goods to make money that will ultimately support their lives going forward. And indeed, there was a great deal of money to be made in this kind of trade, which is why lots of people were doing it throughout time, right? There's, I believe, the first sort of 
oceanic trade contact was between the ancient Indus Valley civilizations and the ancient Mesopotamian civilizations where they were trading goods between these two diverse and different cultures some 5,000 years ago. So it's a really important piece of why someone would risk their lives to get on the ocean and go somewhere different and new and fraught with both excitement and adventure, but also danger. It seems like if people are willing to risk their lives to cross the shores and trade, there must be something on the other side that they need. Do you think that the shores of the Indian Ocean, I mean, maybe we should actually break this down into sort of Eastern Indian Ocean and Western Indian Ocean so that we can actually like process it. Can you give us some examples of how people around the shores have relied on one another, how the everyday functioning of their lives depends on these relationships that exist across the waters? Sure. So the most basic way to think about this is that in many parts of the coasts of the Persian Gulf, rice is a staple food. And some of that is grown in the region, but certainly in the 19th century. And I, and I think well before that, a lot of that rice is imported from India or Burma. And it's the sort of staple food that people eat on a kind of daily basis, and it's coming from across the ocean, which was a kind of fact of life. And in return, things like dates or pearls and these sorts of things would be sent out from the shores of the Persian Gulf to other parts of the Indian Ocean. You know, it's a slightly different story, but of course, fish is a key part of the diet for obviously almost anyone who lives along the coasts of the ocean. But we know that fish becomes this kind of key piece of people's lives. It's what's fed to cows and camels. It's used as fertilizer for growing plants. So things that are coming from the ocean are just super normal, everyday things that people do rely on to just sustain their bodily existence. Hmm. So we have the sense that it's the water, boats are flowing back and forth. Can you complicate this picture? In the early 19th century, what kinds of outside forces interrupt the flows of exchange? Well, I think the place maybe to start, and before we get to sort of political forces, is to remember that getting from one place to another on the ocean involves wind, right? And in the Indian Ocean, you have what are called monsoon winds. And monsoon comes from the Arabic mausum, which just means season. But it refers to the to the rainy season in places like India. And on the ocean, the monsoon is a kind of regular flow of winds from one side of the ocean to another at different times of the year. So in the summer, the winds flow from the ocean into India and Pakistan. Pakistan, but also sort of in the later part of that, places like Oman get rains as a result of these winds. And the reverse in the winter, East Africa gets a rainy season in the winter because the water heavy air over the ocean comes and blows on the land and drops rain, which means that if you're crossing the ocean, you cross at particular times, right? If you want to get to East Africa, you do it in the winter along with the monsoon 
the winds. And if you want to get to India, you do it in the summer. Now it's, you know, a little bit more complicated in practice than precisely when you sort of set off on your journey, depending on where you are. But roughly speaking, there is already just in the kind of environment and the climate and the weather and the seasons, a sort of stop and go rhythm to how you're crossing the ocean from that monsoon. So that's the kind of basic structure. And one of the things that starts to change in the 19th century is you get steamships. You get these big vessels that are powered by coal that is dug in whales in the western part of Great Britain. And it powers these vessels in the Indian Ocean, which means that you don't have to rely on those monsoons. You can get from Zanzibar to India or to Bandar Abbas or whatever in any time of the year, no matter what the winds and weather is. And what kind of comes along with those steamships is, of course, a larger proportion of European people, both traders and political officials, diplomats, military people, naval people. And they're kind of interested, you know, as empires are (laughs) in controlling what people do, both in their everyday lives, but also how they're moving around spaces. And Britain is famous as the empire that rules the waves. And certainly the British Empire is very concerned to do that. Of course, they're not alone, right? I don't think it's quite correct, but historians have talked about how when Vasco da Gama, the famous Portuguese explorer, finally makes his way around the southern tip of Africa and in a certain very problematic sense, discovers their route to India and this world of Indian Ocean trade. The Portuguese come in and they try to control that trade. They literally say no one else is allowed to trade in pepper. Only the Portuguese are allowed to trade in pepper. And so governments are coming in, they're interested in making money, and they start saying things like, you're not allowed to do things that you've been doing for thousands of years in many cases. So certainly the entry of European empires makes an important shift in the way things are going, which is not to say that Asian empires were not also interested in controlling things on the ocean, though they did so in a different way. And what about local threats to circulation and the free flow of goods? A lot of people like to bring up piracy and say that there was violence. There were these threats that were not related to the weather that were from these local sources of power. So what role does piracy play in shifting movement? Is that not problematic? Do people know their way around pirates? Is it wreaking major havoc on the flow of goods? How do we look at piracy? Yeah, piracy is, I think, a very sort of important and interesting part of the story of the Indian Ocean. And it affects people in different sets of ways. I mean, the first thing to kind of say about piracy is that the way we think about pirates often doesn't really apply to the way both the people who we would call pirates and the people who were attacked by those people understood what that word means. So we have, yeah, lots of sort of local rulers who claim to rule not just the land, but parts of the sea, particularly the parts of the sea that were right next to the lands that they settled upon. And so if you entered 
their bit of the ocean, then you should pay them a tax. And we know that, you know, as far back as we have historical records, there were local rulers and local groups who were doing this. If a ship came by a certain area, they would either voluntarily come in and pay their taxes or they would be attacked by local rulers and their (laughs) things would be taken from them by force. And this was a relatively normal practice, indeed a kind of an acceptable practice to many people. You kind of understood that that's how things worked. And we see this in the kind of ancient Greek and Roman texts of sailors coming to the Indian Ocean. We see this in several times. The famous Ibn Battuta, the Moroccan traveler of the 14th century, talks about being attacked by marauders, raiders, pirates, what have you. And this was one of the sort of routine dangers of going on the ocean alongside cyclones and various sorts of things that would wreck your ship. So this was very much, I think, a routine sort of obstacle to crossing the ocean, but they also tended to focus in certain areas. So famously, actually, the southwestern coast of India was a place known as a sort of area where pirates frequented. Part of that is that there were so many merchants who wanted to come to that area to buy pepper, amongst other spices. And so there are lots of Rich people are in the area and the kind of pirates felt that they deserve, of course, attacks on that wealth. And it was also a very seasonal practice. So I talked about the monsoons earlier and they practiced piracy when they couldn't go fishing. In the height of the monsoon, the winds and the waves are really choppy. And so it's hard to actually fish fish. And so what people would do is they'd actually get out on those same boats and they would catch those traders who were catching the monsoon to come in and trade in port. And that would be their summer job in a, <laughs> in a certain sense. And they would turn right as the season ended back to fishing when the monsoon season had ended. So plenty of people found ways around that. They knew either you go in and you pay your tax to the right people and you won't get attacked. You avoid certain areas and you buy forms of insurance and various sorts of things. So in doing so, you can minimize the risk that piracy will affect you. But it was both a sort of real danger, but also something that people kind of understood as part of the just normal risks of getting out on the ocean. Just as much as, say, the winds were. Right. I would think that is a not dissimilar kind of calculation that people made. And they would, of course, also pray. I don't know the specifics of what exactly they prayed for, but they prayed for safety and probably also for good markets where you could sell your stuff at good prices. So you mentioned that the Western empires shook things up to a large extent. Can you talk about how the advent of empire in the region transformed economic life, the way that goods moved, the way that people moved. Do you think it fundamentally changed the character of the Indian Ocean world? So this is a hotly debated question as as hot debates go in academic circles like this. <laughs> couple things to say. One is that, of course, the advent of empire, of course, precedes European empire. And that's a sort of world of ancient Indian Ocean that I'm not as familiar with. But I suspect that those empires were concerned with controlling 
trade and profit making in, in many different ways. We know that the Portuguese did try to monopolize trade in ways that seemed pretty new. It, it was a new thing to do, but it was also a kind of a stupid thing to do because no one can really monopolize or control the ocean. It's just so massive. And the Portuguese thought they could, and they couldn't, right? They made lots of money, but they couldn't actually control the ocean. They couldn't actually monopolize the trade in pepper. And so they did change things, but not necessarily the ways that they intended. Now, what happens in the 19th century, alongside new forms of technology like steamships, like new kinds of weapons, we do see the greater ability of empires, particularly the British Empire, to, if not control, then intervene and reroute the forms that trade takes in the 19th century. And I think that we do see important ways that different sets of people become more powerful, different sets of people are able to make more money and trade is organized in a different way as a result of these interventions of different sorts by empires, particularly the British Empire. But the French Empire is there and the Dutch are there certainly in in Indonesia. And we can see as well the Omani Empire in the early 19th century is an important part of the story of imperial intervention in trade as well. Would you say that Western empires concentrated power in a different kind of way than had been seen prior? Were they able to exert more control over the spaces? My sort of gut reaction is to say yes, <laughs> just because they're able to cover more of the actual ocean faster because of the technology, because of the concentration of wealth. Putting a, a battleship out into the ocean costs lots of money, not only paying soldiers, but paying for coal and all kinds of things to maintain that kind of military force. That kind of concentration of wealth in an imperial power does seem to be new in that sense with European empires in the 19th century. The question is kind of what is the ultimate effect of that? Are they able to do what they want to do? And I think that's a more questionable thing. Are they actually able to control people's lives more intensively than previous empires or local rulers were? That I can't say for certain, but I would doubt it is as intense a form of control either than the British would have liked to have controlled or that different form of control than empires, or in many ways, sort of merchant groups and influential kinds of figures, judges and families that were sort of influential in Sufi orders and other sorts of things. There were forms of control that they could exercise over their particular sets of followers and in particular areas or particular diasporas that were in some ways certainly comparable to what the British Empire is able to do in the 19th century. One thing that this makes me think about is the gunboats that you mentioned as a kind of symbolic power that wasn't actually used very often. Is there a way that the symbolic power that a gunboat, big massive steel gunboat 
cruising the Gulf or the Arabian Sea intimidated people into moving in different kinds of ways, moving themselves, moving their goods? How does it impact how people see how they can move? How does it impact the relationships across the waters? Yeah, I mean, the impact is obviously very substantial. And in that there's this giant thing, this big, scary thing that you have to deal with now. Now, I think there's a sort of interesting question of whether the gunboat, I think, has these big ships and the British Empire has profound influences on the places that people choose to go, what they choose to trade, all of these sorts of things. I'm not sure that they are precisely the things that the policymakers back in London intended, but the impact is unquestionably massive. So what happens, right, we have the rise and fall of different port cities. So if the Qajar Empire, I mean, you would know this better than I do, right? I mean, what is the role of the British Empire stationing their kind of Persian Gulf headquarters in Bushehr, right? How does that change the way the people in that city are engaging in trade? And how does it expand the trade of Bushehr over competing ports along the Iranian coast like Bandar Linge or ports on the other side of the Gulf in places like Muscat or Kuwait or what have you. I mean, we certainly see certain kinds of trade gets focused in areas where the British set up their commercial presence. So the rise of Bahrain is clearly at least in part caused by the focus of British forces in the island of Bahrain, which is of course tied to the fact that Bahrain can have a kind of deep water port that can hold those gunboats and other ports can't. But I think what also happens is that people who want to stay away from those big gunships and do things that the British don't like, they go to other ports. And certainly that's an important part of the story of the rise of Dubai in the 1950s is the openness of the port to people kind of skirting around regulations over what can be imported and exported from different cities. In the case of Dubai, it's, of course, imports of things like gold and polyester to India, but also Iran. Those controlled economies of post-colonial states in those places lead to the rise of these kind of less regulated, little bit shadier economies in places like Dubai. And the same sort of stories were happening in ports like Sur, in Oman, and other ports all around the Indian Ocean world in order to move around the presence of government officials and gunboats and all of the political power that's concentrated in certain areas. So what you're saying is that certain kinds of trade go to certain kinds of ports and the trade that goes into big ports is on steamships in certain kinds of goods perhaps that are more easily quantifiable, taxable. Can you give us a sense of what that looks like in terms of products, just for some texture? I mean, you talked about rice. Are there any other goods that are going to specific places because of steam, because of the way that British power worked in this period? Sure, yeah. So in some ways, you can see that certain Commodities come from certain places, particularly places like Europe or North America, are going to come on those steamships. So maybe an interesting way to talk about this is guns, is rifles and modern kind of weaponry, which is for the most part produced in places like Belgium and London and France and, and the U.S. And it arrives in the Indian Ocean on 
British and French and German steamships. And they come to these big ports. But then they kind of move into more surreptitious and questionable itineraries. And those same guns, which are imported or brought into this region from Europe on steamships, get put on sailing vessels and they get taken from a port like Bahrain and they get imported to ports like Linge, where they're not sort of officially permitted or they require certain kinds of government licensing in order to import them. And so we see the same thing takes different types of vessel to go to different types of ports, depending on how legal, how above board those things actually are, depending on who's buying them and, and that sort of thing. And at what point do guns become legal or illegal? The question of trading in guns and who gets to buy them, who gets to sell them, where do they go? Can you tease out the story a little bit for us? Sure. It's complicated. <laughs> um, there's Every country has different specific laws about who gets to have guns and who doesn't get to have guns and who gets to sell their guns and who doesn't get to sell their guns. And then, of course, individuals have different interpretations of that law. And so broadly speaking, right, if we're talking about the British Empire in this case, we're talking about people who are in the army get to buy guns, right? But also if you're an aristocratic British guy, no one's going to ask too many questions if you're purchasing a weapon. But if you are a Bedouin in what's today the UAE and you're trying to purchase a rifle, a lot more questions are going to be asked. Your paperwork is going to be scrutinized a lot more closely. I mean, one of the best ways of thinking about this is there is this kind of insane and weird and wonderful French smuggler slash venturer aristocrat guy called Henri de Montfred. His father is like this artist who hangs out with Gauguin and stuff. And so, you know, he has this kind of bearing of a French aristocrat. And he is this incredibly effective and efficient arms smuggler because people kind of trust that, oh, well, he's a respectable looking guy. He speaks this beautiful French and, you know, whatever, he looks sophisticated. And so he's able to get away with all kinds of things, in some cases, quite blatantly breaking the law because people just kind of give him a pass because he looks a particular way, he speaks a particular way, he dresses a particular way. And so you're able to sort of exploit those advantages to break the law in this case. Was the banning of specific commodities something that was introduced by Western empires in the region? Do we have earlier examples, the 18th century, early 19th century of local powers that were trying to put a stop on the circulation of particular kinds of goods or people? So what we do have is certain kinds of monopolies. So I believe things like salt are actually... Uh, at least the trading of salt is monopolized by certain governments. I know that the sultans of Muscat at some point sort of control the salt trade. The complicated pieces of thinking about other empires is that this line between government and a businessman is blurrier than we are accustomed to thinking about. So the sultans of Muscat were rulers of the city of Muscat and this kind of empire that kind of went into the, the mountains of Oman and at different moments out at different parts of the ocean. But they were also merchants who traded stuff for their personal profit. 
profit and they might compete with other merchants who are not also rulers in sort of exchanging certain goods. And so their ability to use their military power to control certain trades, it wasn't as clear cut as we think of today. The government shouldn't be involved in trading stuff in the marketplace. That's that's kind of a problem. But that wasn't necessarily how people thought about it in many ways for many empires before the kind of 19th century. That makes me think of all of these scholar merchants that also live around the shores of the ocean as well. It's sort of funded by the business that they do, but their real job is to be the Qadi or whatever. Right, right. So it, it seems like everyone has the potential to be some kind of a trader with a D trader. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but that actually, I think, raises an important question about people's ability to get into this circulation. And I think that there's a sense to which we feel like the ocean is so fluid that everyone's just going going here and there and everywhere, but it's possibly a very small portion of the population that is actually going from place to place. So can you talk about the networks that operate in the ocean, around the ocean, across the ocean? Who leaves? Who doesn't leave? What are the different kinds of roles that people play in this very dynamic world but that may not actually leave the shores of where they are. Obviously, the people that we're talking about in terms of the population of countries and and of the world more generally is a relatively small number. So first, the sort of thing that you're talking about is people who are, for the most part, living along the coast rather than deeper inland where you can mostly survive on agriculture or other forms of land-based economic activity. So there's that kind of, it's not a tight distinction, you don't have to live on the coast, but that's sort of a rough distinction that you, first of all, you're talking about the people who are already living in proximity to the water. And then even within that set of people, there's people who have little fishing boats and travel out for the day to go fishing and come back. And that's the sort of extent of their being on the ocean, which is a different category of people than the sailors and the merchants who are actually crossing the ocean. Then there's a whole sort of issue of gender, right? So the ship is, for the most part, a male space, though not exclusively. You do have women who are often traveling as passengers on vessels, whether to go on pilgrimage, to accompany family members, occasionally, right, as merchants in their own right. But for the most part, there is a kind of gender divide between who goes out on the ocean and who doesn't. And we see this in certain ways that we have evidence of a lot of sailors and merchants will actually keep multiple families who, if they're following the monsoon winds, they're going to spend the winter in East Africa and they'll have a family in Zanzibar and then they spend the summer in India or in Basra or wherever and they'll have another family there. So that's another piece of the story where we do have a kind of gendered division of labor, a gendered sort of division of who tends to go out on the ocean 
and who doesn't do it as much. Now, all of these, I will say, they're, they're not hard and fast distinctions, but they're kind of, in general, this is one of the things that we see, these kinds of concentrations within particular villages and within particular cities, class divisions, gender divisions, and then more broadly, the coastal versus the inland kind of divisions that you see. So there's all of these kind of gradations of how you interact with the water. And what starts to happen in, I would say, the sort of late 19th and early 20th century, certainly in the case of sailors coming from places like India, is that the population of sailors becomes much more diverse. It used to be people who lived along the coast or lived along riverine areas who had some expertise already. But by the time you get steamships where all you need to be a sailor is be able to shovel coal into a fire pit, then people from further inland become sailors on these big steamships. And of course, there's fundamental divisions between why you are crossing the ocean and the greater or lesser amount of choice that you have in that decision, right? So the the wealthy always have more ability, opportunity, and choice in the matter of whether they're going on the ocean. And if you're poor, you're more likely to become a sailor or pearl diver or what have you, in part because of economic necessity. And then, of course, there are slaves and slaves who are physically captured and kidnapped and taken across the ocean, but also people who are not kidnapped, but are kind of sell themselves or sell their children or, you know, or go into such kind of debt and poverty and destitution that they enter into slavery through sheer debt and poverty and then are shipped off to some other corner of the world with no choice of their own in the matter. Do you think that these steamships that people flock to once they're available to take them across the seas has an important role to play in the way that these spaces are connected to each other? Do the steamships disrupt what the Indian Ocean is because it brings people from the hinterland with previously no experience on the water into circulation and into contact with people where there was no historical interaction? I would say it sort of, it probably increases, it, it changes the kind of demographic. So though, you know, as with all of these things, there's a more complicated story. I mean, we do know certainly for things like going on the Hajj or sort of Buddhist pilgrims and Hindu pilgrims, people are coming from far inland and mountains, all sorts of things. And they are also coming and crossing the ocean for a very long time. And obviously it's sort of slave transports are also crossing that distinction. But I think we can safely say that those numbers increase. They become a larger sort of proportion of the people who are crossing the ocean just because it's become less dangerous. It's in most cases become cheaper to do. And because there's another technology that ties into that, right, which is railways and highways and land transportation infrastructures that facilitate people who are inland getting to the ocean and then 
subsequently crossing the ocean. So I think we see a kind of expansion of those sets of people in the course of the 19th and 20th century. And of course, in some ways, we could say that that kind of reverses in the second half of the 20th century, where people start taking airplanes rather than ships. And now I think there's probably fewer people as a proportion of the total population than there have been for centuries, because you need five, 10 guys to run a container ship that has just enormous amounts of cargo, whereas a much smaller amount of cargo 100 years ago would have required five times as many people to actually run a sailing vessel. And so there is this kind of back and forth in different sets of people, but I would hesitate to say that there's a total difference. It's often matters of gradation and of quantity rather than fundamentally revolutionary change. What is the impact of these steamships on the Indian Ocean world as an economic unit? Historians have this annoying habit of saying everything is complex, uh, which is true, (laughs) but annoying. So, you know, I think there certainly a lot more is being transported across the Indian Ocean because of steamships than was previously. Just sheer volume is larger because this technology makes it ultimately easier, though it's, I think, a very bumpy road to actually get to that. You know, more stuff crosses the ocean today by far than crossed the ocean 200 years ago or even 100 years ago. And so I think there's little question that that technology means that we are at least economically more dependent on people in other areas. And I think that's true within the Indian ocean. But another thing that the steamships do is they also reduce the importance of the Indian Ocean, right? That the Indian Ocean becomes sort of one piece of the larger kind of world of global trade. It doesn't disappear, it doesn't become irrelevant, but you can assume that stuff that is coming to you from China or Latin America or in most cases, right, Europe and North America are going to arrive on your doorstep from across the ocean without much more difficulty than they arrive from across the Indian Ocean. And and I think that's all part of this larger story of steamships, but also of a story of empires and of governments that create all kinds of legal systems, political systems that make that easier and even encourage that kind of long distance trade in ways that they didn't necessarily do so before. So given what you've just said about the role of steamships and connecting places around the Indian Ocean literal to the wider world, is there still an Indian Ocean market Was there ever an Indian Ocean market that was internally contained? Or is it even relevant to talk about an Indian Ocean economy anymore? Is it gone and we're all a part of this world economy together? I would say that it does still matter. I'm not sure that it was ever fully contained. And I think this is where... We have to remember that the rich world of the Indian Ocean that historians and various people have described in the 17th century, that was a world that was still very much connected both to land, right, to the Silk Road, but also to other oceans. Certainly the connection between the Indian Ocean, the South China Sea, and the eastern seaboard of Asia 
we're always well integrated. And there's always, I think, going to be a question about where does that lie? I mean, defining the Indian Ocean, I think you can ask some geographer and they will give you a very precise definition of where the ocean is and draw a line on the map where Indian Ocean ends. But those are kind of relatively arbitrary distinctions. So that connection has always been there, but What matters is I think there are certain kinds of connections that are not exclusive, that are not fully contained, but are still distinct in certain ways. And you see this in the fact that, you know, why are the laborers who are building World Cup stadiums in Qatar, why are they coming from South Asia? And that is, I think, part of this sort of enduring Indian Ocean connection, both the simple fact that it's close, but also because these are cultures that have been in contact for a longer period. And similarly, right, we see the other side of that is there are businessmen from India who are becoming millionaires in Tanzania or South Africa. The Chinese investment in the Indian Ocean is a big source of controversy and and political furors, but those are tied up with this sort of longer history. So, I mean, certainly in the case of China, they're explicitly drawing upon this history of the Indian Ocean, of the great 15th century explorer and Admiral Zheng He as the historical backdrop to Chinese investment in South Asia, in the Middle East, in East Africa. And so those connections have some kind of cultural power that continue, I think, to inflect the kinds of economic decisions that we make today. But they are, of course, still part of this larger world. They don't exclude what the U.S. or Britain or France or whatever else is kind of their interests in in the story as well. Thank you so much for your time and for chatting with us today. Thank you. This was great. For our listeners, once again, that was Johan Matthew, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers University. Feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and continue the conversation. 